0: If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 for our scripture reading. uh, uh, Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. And then, if you will, please turn uh, uh, or have ready uh, our sermon passage, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Again, Luke 4, verses 16 to 21 is our scripture reading. And First Samuel 10 verses 1 to 16 is our sermon passage. Brothers and sisters, as the word of God is about to be read to you, as you are about to read along with it, I want to remind you, as always, that this is the word of the Lord, that this is the Lord speaking to you. And so we call upon you to give your full attention to God's holy, infallible, inerrant and inspired word. Luke chapter four verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind." to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning at verse verse 1 and reading through verse 16. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Oh, most gracious God, we thank you for this passage. These passages that we have heard this morning, we pray that your spirit, the same spirit who anointed Saul, would also, O oh Lord, give us wisdom and guidance, that he would help us to understand what we have heard. And so we pray for your spirit's blessing, both upon the reading of the word, but also upon its preaching. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help the one who preaches by the power of the spirit to give the sense of what we have read. And we pray, dear Lord, that the end result would be that we would sing your glories, that we would be more aware of your wondrous works, and that we would exalt your holy name. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 9 that the greatest threat to God's people didn't come from the outside of Israel, but from the people of Israel themselves. In chapter 9, verse 17, when Samuel first encountered Saul, he told him, uh, God told Samuel, that is, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, it would have been natural to assume that the king's responsibility would be restraining Israel's enemies, but God says that he was to restrain God's own people. We saw how ultimately Saul would fail to restrain his people from their sin, that he would fail to restrain himself. And we also saw that the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, of which Saul would stand as the first, we saw how that paved the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. In our passage this morning, Samuel anoints Saul as king, and though it is done in private, And the proclamation, or we might say the coronation of Saul as king, would have to wait. Uh, We have here the already and the not yet. By the end of this morning's passage, Saul will have been anointed as king, but not yet enthroned. And David, too, will experience a delay between his anointing as king and his enthronement, a far longer delay than Saul's, to be sure, but a delay nonetheless But in our passage, Saul's anointing is followed by a period in which several signs serve to point out the authority by which Samuel acts to anoint Saul king. But more more importantly, the signs point to the fact that God himself has ordained it. As we make our way through the sermon passage this morning, I would ask you to consider this thought. Despite the establishment of earthly authority, God still reigns as king. And he alone saves his people from their enemies. I'll say that one more time. Despite the establishment of earthly authority, God still reigns as king. And he alone saves his people from their enemies. The sermon is uh, made up of three points. The first point, a series of signs. The second, God is with you. And the third, another heart. Again, a series of signs. That's the first point. God is with you. The second and another heart is the third. So let's take a look at, begin with a series of signs. In verse 1, Samuel, despite his uh, very clear misgivings about Israel having a king, he goes through with what the Lord has commanded him to do. He takes a flask of oil, he pours it on the head of Saul, and then he kissed him and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of Yahweh? And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now Samuel told Saul to have his servant go on ahead of him at the end of chapter 9. And now he consecrates Saul to be the ruler of Israel. But notice the word that Saul uses here. Saul doesn't say that he's anointing, Samuel doesn't say that he's anointing Saul as king. Instead, he says that Yahweh has anointed Saul to be prince over his people. This sets the foundation that Saul needs always to keep in his mind. That even though the people of Israel wanted a king, just like all the other nations around them, Saul is not a king of Israel in the way that these other leaders are. He's not the king of Israel the way that the Ammonites had a king. By telling Saul that God has anointed him as prince over the people of Israel, Samuel is reminding Saul that he will always be under the authority of the true king of Israel, God himself. And that he, Saul, serves at the pleasure of his king. Now Samuel uses the term prince two times in verse 1 to drive that point home. And so when Samuel tells Saul in the second half of verse 1 that he will save God's people from the hand of their surrounding enemies, he is saying that Saul is going to do so by the power of his king, Yahweh. Saul, or any king of Israel, any of the kings who came about after Saul in Israel and Judah, they are not absolute monarchs. In fact, the hierarchy that's established in this passage is is Yahweh at the top, and then Samuel, and then Saul. One commentator writes, a strict hierarchical classification of characters has arisen, with God at the top, under him on a really different echelon, the prophet, and far below the candidate for the throne. Now, most of the kings of Israel will subvert or invert this hierarchy, placing themselves at the top. And they will need to be corrected by God's prophet. And Saul here is no exception. In fact, he sort of sets the pattern to confirm to Saul, the truth of Samuel's words, and more importantly for Saul to know that it is God himself who has anointed him as prince over his people, the last part of verse 1 says, and this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then beginning in verse 2 and stretching on through verse 6, God through Samuel will reveal to Saul three events which God has orchestrated as signs to prove that he has been anointed as king by God. The first of the three signs will take place after Saul has departed from Samuel and makes his way back to the home of the land, to the lands of Benjamin, to his home territory. Samuel, Saul at this point and Samuel meeting with him, they're in the lands of Ephraim. And so to walk from there to the lands of Benjamin would, would have been a walk of several hours. Once he's in his people's territory at the, home of, at the tomb of Rachel, Saul will meet two men who will tell him that the donkeys he was searching for have been found. And now his father no longer worries about those donkeys, but now he's turned his attention and his anxieties about the whereabouts of Saul. Now it's worth noting that God orchestrated this first sign to take place at Rachel's tomb. Modern archaeology doesn't know the exact location of Rachel's tomb, but the significance of the location in this passage lies in the fact that Rachel was the mother of Benjamin. And so it makes sense that her tomb, they would have carried her bones, brought them into Benjamin's territory. But even more significant, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, the patriarch of Saul's people. She died. And the first sign that Saul is to receive takes place at her tomb. This serves as at least a slight foreshadowing of what was to come with Saul. And then in verses 3 and 4, Samuel tells Saul that he will depart from Rachel's tomb and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men who are going up to Bethel will meet Saul there, one carrying three young goats and another carrying three loaves of bread, and the third carrying a skin of wine. And these men will greet Saul and give him two loaves of bread, which Saul will accept. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, Saul will go to Gibeath Elohim, the hill of God, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and he will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place. And the spirit of Yahweh is going to rush upon Saul, and he will begin to prophesy with these other prophets and be turned into another man. Skipping down slightly in the passage, verse 9 says that all of these signs came to pass that day. Now, when we think of signs, we think of the miracles that Jesus and the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament performed. We think of wonders. We think of healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, the deaf, uh, the, I'm sorry, the deaf having their hearing, the dead coming back to life. That's what we think. And, and so we think of these wondrous things that take place. The signs here in our passage, except for the third, are fairly mundane. Saul meets some people. The first group tell him where the donkeys have ended up, that they're okay, uh, they're fine. The second group gives him some bread. But the signs serve first and foremost to show Saul that God is in control, that God is king, that God is sovereign even over the most minor affairs of Saul's life. And so the signs point to God as the sovereign ruler over Israel, not Saul, And secondarily, these signs demonstrate to Saul that Samuel is the true prophet of the Lord, that Saul is subordinate to Samuel because Samuel is the mouthpiece of God. He is the speaker of the word of God. That takes us to the second part of the sermon, God is with you. In verse 7, Samuel says to Saul, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Verse 7 contains the first command that we have in our passage, and as always, we see in Scripture there is a command, and there is the reason why it ought to be obeyed. There is the indicative and the imperative. There's there's the statement of fact, which serves as the reason why we ought to be obedient to God's commands, and there is uh, the command itself. The first command we have here, the, the, the you shall do this, is followed by the motivation for Saul doing what his hand finds to do. And that motivation is, the indicative is that God is with him. Saul is under God's blessing. Now, this does not mean that Saul can do whatever he wants to do in these three encounters that he's going to have or in things following that. To be fair, it does sound at first like Samuel is giving Saul free reign, It sounds like he's saying, do what, in parenthesis there, ever your hand finds to do. And indeed, Saul seems to take it that way, and it will prove to be his undoing in chapter 13. The command that Samuel gives to Saul doesn't mean that he can do anything he likes. As king, Saul is under God's authority. As, as Dale Davis says in his commentary, even though God's spirit is going to give Saul power, he must still exercise that power in obedience to God's word. And we are guilty of the same thing in our day. We hear Paul tell us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we think that that means we have license to do whatever we want. Now, Paul there absolutely was emphasizing the freedom that we have in Christ. He's emphasizing that that we have been set free. But just as with Saul, our freedom to do what our hand finds to do is rooted in the fact that God is with us. It's rooted in the fact that Saul and we are not without obligation. We have a duty to be obedient to the God who is with us. This was especially important for the man who would be king. Every decision that he would make from this point on would have consequences not just for himself, but for the nation of Israel. But obedience is equally important for us as well because we are the sons and daughters of the king. It's not just Saul who needs to be obedient, despite the freedom that he has, we do too. And this expectation that Saul will be obedient to God's word is demonstrated in verse 8. Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And in his next breath, after telling Saul to do what his hand finds to do, Samuel clearly shows Saul that he, that Saul is a man under authority, even as the leader of God's people. Samuel tells him, you are to go down to Gilgal. You are to wait seven days until Samuel comes to you. Samuel will show Saul what he is supposed to do. Now, there's definitely a tension in this passage. Do whatever your hand finds to do versus I will show you what to do. But this is a tension that every Christian feels. God's sovereignty, God's absolute rule over all things versus man's responsibility. But the tension exists only when we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as adversaries of one another. We need to remember that God's sovereignty does no violence to the will of individuals. Human beings do what we want to do. No human being is forced against his will to sin. If we sin, we do so because we want to do so. And if we as Christians who have been set free from our bondage to sin are obedient to God's word, we have done what we wanted to do. And so it's very clear to Saul, or at least it should be, that there are limits to the power that he has given. He does not act alone as king. God is with him. This leads us to the third section of the sermon, Another Heart. Back just a moment to verse 6. Samuel tells Saul that after the Spirit rushes upon him, he will prophesy with the group of prophets coming down from the high place and will be turned into another man. In verse 9 we read, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all the things that Samuel said would happen came to pass that very day. Now, the author of the book of Samuel doesn't go into any detail about the signs Samuel prophesied would happen, except the third, the rushing of, uh, upon Saul of God's spirit and his prophesying alongside the other prophets who came down from the high place. He doesn't, uh, the narrator doesn't tell us th- about the events that took place prior to that. All we're told is that these things came to pass exact, exactly as Samuel said they would. We have to be very careful here of importing a New Testament understanding of the giving of the Holy Spirit into what is being described in these verses, as if conversion is only something that happens to prophets and kings. We ought not to think here necessarily that this is a a regeneration experience for Saul. If that's the case, then why don't other Old Testament believers experience the same thing? We have to understand here that Saul is being especially equipped as king by being given the Holy Spirit in a measure that enables him to rule over and to defend his people. But he is also given another heart. He's turned into another man. Primarily, I think this means that the farmer, Saul, the son of the farmer, he is changed in such a way as to be the military leader of his people. And all you need to do to see this change in this man, Saul, is to to look at those military campaigns in chapter 11, to see this change that took place in Saul. But even before that, the change in Saul is so profound that the people who knew him were amazed. Verses 10 to 13, they give the details of the third sign that Samuel prophesied would happen. And when the people see the change in Saul, they said things like, what has come over, over the son of Kish? And is Saul also among the prophets? They couldn't believe their eyes and ears. They, they couldn't understand what is happening. We see a reversion later on in chapter 10 to, to the Saul of old. When, when Samuel is, uh, has this convocation of God's people. We'll get there next week, Lord's willing, Lord willing. But we see Saul uh, hiding uh, under a, a bushel. He doesn't want the attention that is coming to him. This boy who had been on a quest chasing his father's donkeys was now uttering prophecies alongside other prophets. This was a sign to Saul that everything that Samuel had said would happen to Saul would indeed come to pass. Now Saul would take this. He would take this time of being able to prophesy with these other prophets coming down from the high place and he would Believe that that made him a prophet, that that gave him the ability to carry out the things that Samuel himself and only Samuel could carry out. And so we see in chapter 13 Saul's great sin. It went to his head. He didn't understand that this sign was intended to point to God himself and the power that God was giving to Saul. Now, none of this should be taken to say that, that Saul wasn't an Old Testament believer. But the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit in this case, is primarily to equip Saul as the leader of of Israel. Not to be seen, we shouldn't see it as the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And this also gives us hope, brothers and sisters. If Saul truly was an Old Testament believer, I think we can can assume he was. Despite his grievous sins, it reminds us that Christians sin, that, that believers sin. That believers do awful things. We don't have to look too far to find that. The change in Saul that we we find in this passage, it's so profound that the phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? It became a proverb in Israel. This man was transformed. But at this point, all of the events of the day, they had not yet gone to Saul's head. Verses 14 to 16 describe Saul's return to his family, first greeting his uncle. And when Saul told his uncle that that in their search for his father's donkey, they ended up going to Samuel, Saul's uncle asked asked Saul what Samuel told them. And Saul mentioned the part about the donkeys being found, but he didn't say anything to his uncle about the fact that he had been chosen to be the ruler of God's people. At this point, it hadn't gone to his head. It hadn't caused his ego to swell. A few years of military campaigns, however, and it's a different story. A few years of victory, and it's a different matter. Saul is going to suffer not a military defeat just yet, but a moral failure. Saul is going to act according to his own sense of timing rather than waiting on the Lord. And his impetuousness will lead to his downfall as the king of Israel. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason why we are not to put our confidence in princes. We're not to place our trust in our leaders here on earth. They will always fail us, always. Even the ones we love the most. But neither should we place our confidence and our trust in ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we are far more like Saul than we're oftentimes willing to admit. We've seen before that though Saul failed as Israel's king, he was the first in a long line of kings that would eventually lead to King Jesus, God's true anointed one. And Jesus makes that very clear in that passage from Luke chapter 4. He is the anointed one, he is the Lord's anointed. He's the one prophesied in the book about in the book of Isaiah. But Saul, in all of his imper- imperfections, He also serves as a sign to us. Saul serves to point us to our own inability, to our own failings, to our own uh, uh, sin. All of Israel's king save one will fail in ruling and restraining Israel. And you and I, we fail too. We sin every day. We're commanded to be obedient, and yet we are not obedient, not perfectly obedient the way that God's word commands us to be. But here's what we need to keep in mind. We don't have an earthly king who rules over us and defends us and restrains us and defends us from those enemies who are around us. We have a heavenly king, King Jesus, who was obedient in every way to the commands of his father. We have a king who was obedient in our place. He was obedient for Saul. He was obedient for you and for me. And this king, King Jesus, continues to be the perfect king, He is the one who lived and died for his people, and he continues to be the one who sits at his father's right hand, who is the head of his church, who rules over his people and defends us and ensures that no one and no thing can take us from the hand of his father. This is King Jesus. He is our king. He's our Lord. He's our ruler. He is the one who has called us, and he is the one whom we worship. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, O Lord. We thank you that you are good to us and that you have given us a ruler, a king, one who is faithful in every way, one who will never fail us, one who will never disappoint us, one who has been obedient to his Father in all things while he lived here on earth. And one who had been anointed and equipped for his role as our king had to wait for his enthronement, but who did so patiently, who did so willingly. We are thankful, O King Jesus, that you are now enthroned on high and that you rule over us all. We pray, O Lord, that we would be your willing, loyal, and loving subjects. We pray that we wouldn't grouse or complain. We pray that we would trust you as our king, as our leader. We pray, dear Lord, that we would trust, that we would know, because your word tells us that this is true, that you will never fail us.